Hello, I'm Garni Barkajarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Dr. Brian Gantworker, and uh, this is the CNS Optimizing uh, Patient Care Podcast. And I, it is my distinct honor to interview today one of my mentors, one of my friends, uh, is Dr. Richard Ellenbogen. Uh, Dr. Richard Ellenbog and I have known each other since about the year 2000, which puts us about 23 years ago, if you can believe that, Rich. Um, Dr. Ellenbogen is the uh, distinguished chairman uh, and the Theodore S. Roberts Chair of the Department of Neurological Surgery at the University of Washington. He is a graduate of the Brigham and Boston Children's Harvard Medical School Residency Program. Uh, he uh, had an esteemed career with Walter Reed, and he is uh, the uh, co-principal investigator of the Veterans Head Injury Program. He's involved with also the NFL Head, Neck, and Spine Committee previously, um, and he is a pediatric neurosurgeon by training. Dr. Uh, Ellenbogen also has an esteemed military career, having served at the 252nd Medical Detachment, uh, the Airborne Corps during Operation Desert Shield and Storm, and he is a Bronze Star winner. Uh, I am definitely not worthy of the presence of Dr. Ellenbogen, but here I am anyway. Rich, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, and thank you for that uh, ridiculously rich uh, <laughs> introduction. I appreciate that, and uh, none of it's probably true, so it's all good. <laughs> Well, you know, Rich, if it's on the internet, it's got to be true. So yeah, we're exactly. in good, shape here. good point. I stand correct. <laughs> <laughs> Rich, uh, Dr. Ellenbogen, I'm going to just sort of jump right in. We're talking about the state uh, of uh, physician-patient interactions today and how we as neurosurgeons and how trainees hopefully can learn how to form sort of these rich connections with their patients and how to build trust and how to maintain a good uh, physician-patient relationship going pretty much from jump. So if it's okay with you, I was just going to sort of ask you a couple, several questions and uh, hopefully get your ideas on this, if that's okay. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Okay. So let's jump right in. Dr. Ellenbogen, how do you feel about the state of physician-patient interactions today? And are there too many people in the mix right now, mid-levels and so forth? What is your, what is your state of the union of the physician-patient relationship right now? I I don't see it as uh, problematic. I, I I think that you, we all have to close our eyes for a second and remember why we went to medical school, right? I mean, why why did we spend four years in college and then another four years in medical school, seven years in residency? And it was essentially to save lives and make people better. And so I think as long as you have a physician neurosurgeon and a patient that needs something done, um, you'll be okay. Um, I, I have a very different view of our APPs. 
I see them as something uh, magnificent and helpful in filling in the gaps for patients when the physician isn't available. So you really look at sort of like a bridge to help sort of get across certain things that we may have to get across, you know, for just points of care and uh, other sort of clinical related issues. Is that right? Yeah, I we have um, we have multiple hospitals in our system, and we have literally four different APP models. So at two of our hospitals, the APPs do inpatient as well as outpatient care. At other hospitals, it's split where there are only outpatient uh, uh, patient uh, only outpatient APPs. And in the other half of the hospital, they're only inpatient APPs. I think whatever elevates the level of care um, is, is okay by me. And in fact, I don't really see people easily practicing neurological surgery. It's so complex. It takes so much time and so much intensity in the operating room that you really need a team. Uh, outside the operating room, one to to really kind of evaluate them, work them up uh, from a medical perspective, and then two to really reassure them. I mean, we do dangerous stuff, right? We're neurological surgeons. Bad diseases, bad conditions. Um, that is dangerous. And, you know, one of the things I always tell my residents, you've got to love the patients more than you hate the disease. And one way to love the patients, to be honest with you, is to bring a, a whole team around, okay? So that they don't feel when you, your head drops on the pillow at midnight that they're alone, that there's, there, there's somebody that's going to be there for them and speak on um, Brian's behalf or Rich's behalf. And I think that um, we're, we're in a much better place now than we were when I started uh, training over 35 years ago. I think um, before that time, um, we, uh, we just didn't go home. Right? We, lived, we lived in the hospital. That's what we did. Probably not the healthiest thing in the world. And I think now with the teams growing, um, uh, it, it, it is better. It, it is better than it was. So really, you, you we were literally residents and the APPs and sort of this current state of affairs is allowing us to have a better, you know, there's that buzz term, work-life balance that you and people like Dr. Spetzler talk about that are so important to residents coming up. And you think we could help, that could really help sort of achieve that uh, going forward. Right. And then at the end of the day, um, it's all about the patients, right? You know, we're, we're a patient-centric uh, profession. We can't do this on Zoom, okay? Yeah, uh, you know, we can, do, we can do clinic visits on Zoom, you know, introductory clinic visits. But at the end, the sine qua non of what we do is the neurologic exam. So we've got to touch a patient to understand, you know, not just look at their MRIs. We do that. Of course, we, we look at their MRIs, but we do that, but we got to examine them. And then what we do is all about psychomotor skill and judgment in the operating room 
So I think that, and it is, it, it, it is trying and it is demanding and it's exacting and, and we have to be perfect every single time. You know, the, our patients expect us not to be perfect most of the time, every single time. And so I think um, uh, just talking about the, the teams that we build, Okay, we're, we're as, as one of my young colleagues says, we're natural leaders, okay? We're physicians. We should be leaders of our team that help nurture the patients through these really complex operations. And, and sometimes, sometimes their post-operative care is easy. You're they're home an hour or two after the operation when it's a straightforward spine operation. And sometimes if it's trauma or, or um, something that caused terrible neurologic impairment, you know, it's not a sprint anymore. It's, it's a marathon. It's weeks and months of care. Think about the patients that are in the hospital for weeks. They need a team, okay? Because you just aren't going to be, you're, you've gone on to the next patient. The expectations of you are to operate. Uh, to operate and to care, but you, they're really extenders for us. So I, I love it. Uh, I think it's we're we're in a better place. So you mentioned I wanted to sort of hone in on an aspect you you mentioned that you know we as the neurosurgeons are are the natural born leaders of our teams, and so you know uh, a lot of uh, surgeons I worked with over the years training, you know, uh, neurosurgeon being the captain of the ship, so to speak. And, you know, as the neurosurgeon, sort of the captain of the ship, and as you were training, you mentioned medical school and everything you came up with. Can you talk a little bit about who or, or what people were your guiding star when it came to learning how to connect with a patient? And especially for those of us who don't maybe have like the natural social connectivity, the social receptors to sort of connect on a very basic level with a patient, because as you intimated, even though we have APPs and extenders, at the end of the day, it's our, you know, our signature at the bottom of the page. It's our, our reputation, our care, our decisions that, that affect the outcomes. So because we're so responsible, the, 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 the people, the leaders, so to speak, how did you, who did you model yourself after coming up as you were training and, and maybe from medical school? You know, it was, you know, I had two really spectacular neurological surgery managers, um, both who have passed and both are dead. Um, John Shillito Jr. at Harvard Medical School and, um, and Mike Scott. And um, they were very, they were very different human beings, but they were very sane in that they uh, were totally patient-centric. And they loved the patients, and the patients could feel that. And they were the bottom line. They direct. I mean, I, I remember Dr. Shillito used to see patients on the weekends, you know. And it's something that I. I mean, I'm not saying that that's healthy, you know. Um, but every once in a while, I run a weekend clinic because you know what, patients really appreciate that, especially the working patient that has to go to work. They love those weekend clinics. And I, and that was something I, I drafted off my, one of my mentors. Um, Mike Scott was one of the most humble, kind, 
compassionate and empathetic person, people. And guess what? He were, both these people were technicians extraordinaire. They had the psychomotor skills. They were perfect every time. And, and if they had a complication, which we all have, they owned it and they looked the patient in the eye. One thing that was different back then, there were no computers. You know, now we sit at a computer on Epic. And one thing I learned from them, there are a few little tricks I learned from them. One is don't be on a, you, you know, don't be on a computer when you're talking to the patient. Look them in the eye, okay? Sit at their level, okay? Sit at their level and look them in the eye, hold their hand or, or, touch them or or look at them so that they understand that what they're saying to you is being heard. And so, you know, that's not rocket science. It's not neurosurgery. It's basic human kindness, okay? Basic human skills. And yes, you don't have to be uh, you, you don't have to be inculcated with uh, leadership courses. You just have to remember one thing. One thing is that this is the worst day of this patient's life when they're coming to see you and me, Brian. So worst day of their life. And you're looking at it, what a wonderful operation I'm about to do. I love this. I may help them, I may save them, et cetera, et cetera. But Darn it, it is the worst day of their life, okay? And if you put that in perspective, it's probably easy to be empathetic. If you were sitting in that place, you know, you'd want the person opposite of it to get it, you know, to, to, to listen to me and get, it, you know, um, even if you're not touchy-feely or, you know, and, and, and that's, that's in everything. And I, you know, I, I have a large... Um, trauma practice and an adult practice as well as pediatric practice. And it, it it's applicable to that practice as, as much as the pediatric practice. It's just the difference of the pediatric practice is you have more people to, to reassure. You, you got parents, <laughs> you got family, as well as the child. Uh, with the adults, you know, it's usually one-on-one -on -one or or uh, a significant other or family member. But yeah, no, I I think uh, that um, the skills I learned, I learned from um, the masters who were before, the, you know, when they walked in a room where a patient was, they didn't stand over their bed. They didn't talk down to them. They pulled up a chair and they said, I teach my residences, just pull up a chair and sit and talk. And if you're there two minutes, they'll think you were there two hours. Now, if you stand over the patient in their bed for two hours, they'll think you were there for two minutes. Okay. So there are little things you can do that make a difference. So sitting down becomes like a force multiplier is what you're saying. Sitting I love down it. at that level, eye to eye. Okay, if you can do it, do it. I always look for the chair in the room. <laughs> I, I always thought, you know, um, when I first started um, training, um, I looked a lot to my pediatric neurosurgical colleagues and I actually wanted to do PEDS for a long, long time. 
especially people like you and, and Alco and sort of the pediatric neurosurgeons in my life have sort of been like a guiding star, how to really connect because you guys really are the acrobats. You have to balance the plate on both hands and on the leg. And because you've got the parents, you got the mom, you got the dad, you got grandma, grandpa, and the kid because you have so much you have to sort of feel in the room. And especially when we're dealing with kids and bad pathology, it really is amazing what you guys can do because you've got to keep sort of everybody in the front of you and be cognizant of their reactions. So I am I think it's really an exemplar to, to everybody to sort of get a mentor who does some peds because it's very difficult because you literally have like three or four patients per patient. So it's pretty much three people per patient. Um, well, I wanted to ask you something uh, kind of pivoting off that, and there's a lot of talk about physician burnout and exhaustion, and there was a recent survey, over three quarters of physicians, some people think more, are, are experiencing symptoms or signs of burnout, maybe more than that. And especially, it's a, it's a very hot topic right now. Do you think that um, the feelings of exhaustion and sort of some of the helpless feelings of today's neurosurgeons, both you know, in practice and training, can they be mitigated by patient connections? Can it sort of help you sort of stop the burnout or, or mitigate the, the feelings of it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So I give a talk on, um, I, I give a talk on this and it's, and I thought about this a lot. And you know, what's interesting in the statistics, if you look at the Mayo Clinic studies, we have the highest, the worst work balance level. We, we have, of all 28 specialties, we have the work, worst work balance left, but we have one of the lowest burnout rates. So why is that? Because I think we're asking the wrong question. If you've gone into neurological surgery, you've already self-selected. You don't have work-life balance. And I don't think that's the question. You know, I know that's a fashionable question, uh, I have a daughter who's a primary care doctor, and that's extremely important to her. But we have something else. We have a mission. We have a drive to save people's lives or prevent further neurologic deficits, et cetera. And so instead of work-life balance, do we wake up every morning and thank God we're doing what we're doing? And obviously, the second you don't feel that way, you retire, you know. And, you know, I have had plenty of colleagues that have done this for 30, 40 years and have done a spectacular job and then wake up one morning and say, you know, this is not as much fun to me as it used to be for a variety of reasons, okay? You know, well, it could be anything from, you know, I used to be able to do any operation in neurosurgery and now... 30 years later, I can do about two operations in neurosurgery because, you know, I it's technologically advanced ahead of me, okay? But I don't think we're going, we, we don't have the burnout that you have an emergency, in all respect to these specialties, emergency room physicians, family medicine physicians, think about how hard their jobs are. I mean, the stress of an emergency room physician the stress of a family medicine physician that's got to see 20 patients a day in 15-minute increments, okay? Not what we chose. We, listen, this is America. We asked for it. We got it. We chose neurological surgery, and you got to just wake up every morning, and instead of asking your work-life balance, it's like, 
Do you love this? Can, can you believe they let us do this and they actually pay us to do this? I can't believe it. I wake up and I'm like, you know, I, granted I'm first generation physician, but I can't believe they let us do it. So I don't, I, I appreciate, uh, I mean, work-life balance is important, but the reason we don't have burnout is the satisfaction from doing the profession. We were given a gift, okay? We were given a gift. We get to do neurological surgery. Holy mackerel, not, that gift is not given to everybody, okay? And if we see it as such, I think there's less burnout. It doesn't mean you shouldn't take vacation. I mean, I think what's better is, you know, our mentors, you know, they they work seven days a week without break and they were maybe not good parents. I think, you know, the, the best thing, the best thing you can do to avoid burnout is surround yourself with family and friends. That, that's how you avoid burnout. Because, you know, the, the humor and the fun you get from being around family and friends, I think that's what prevents burnout. And as long as you make time to do that, and it's not amount of time, and it's not quality of time, it's just time. It's a simple, you know, your kid doesn't know, you know, you know if you spend quality time. Your children want to know, hey, if I said I was taking you skiing, take they want to see you follow through as a neurosurgeon and take them skiing. And they see that, okay, you can do something besides neurosurgery that's important to you. Um, so I think we're asking the wrong question, work-life balance and burnout. I think the more important question is you wake up every day and feel lucky that you're doing what you're doing. And when you don't anymore, it's probably tough. You know, you're done. It's an interesting, it's all sort of like your uh, your expiration date, so to speak. You know, when you're done, when you wake up and you're not looking forward to the day, um, yeah. that really does, that definitely resonates. I wanted to, uh, this is probably going to be my, my last question, and I want to thank you for taking all this time. Um, if you could change one thing or one dogmatic axiom about how, as neurosurgeons, we interact with patients and their families, what would it be? If you could create the perfect relationship between patient and physician, how would you shape that? Would it be more time? Would it be more technology, less technology? What would it be for you? What would that look like? You know, I, I, I think for a patient, I just got to, you know, we're old enough now that we're sometimes patients, you know, I mean, uh, you know, you, you now have to, you know, you have to do something with the GI doctor, you have to do something with the dermatologist, etc. So what, what do patients really want? They, they want someone to look them in their eye and tell them the truth and be honest and be empathetic. And so time is, is of the essence and we don't have much time. And I think that's always the battle is, um, we think, you know, we had a level three or a level four visit, right? I mean, all this technical, level four, I was in there for 30 minutes, et cetera. But did you answer all the patient's questions? And when you left the room, did they have nothing more that they wanted to ask you? So I think time does make a difference and we don't have much of it. And that's always the conflict. Um, um, and so, 
one of the arts of our profession is making sure that you, you know, the little things, like you sit down and you face them, you actually examine them means you touch them, and so they know. You go over things, explain, and the last question you have for them, is there anything, any question that I haven't answered yet for you that you're thinking about right now? That should always be the last question out of the door. Is there anything that we haven't touched on you want to tell me? Um, so, and, and why do you learn that is because if you've ever been a patient, that that's the question. There are things you want, you don't want the person backing up towards the door, standing up, saying, okay, I'll see you, see you. Um, that, that's a very unsatisfying um, relationship. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, and um, we'll probably wrap up with this. My thing when I tell uh, people I work with, you know, patients, my goal is to get to the uncomfortable silence at the end of the visit. Is there anything else you want to ask me? And it's that five second pause where they have that time to sort of go through their mental Rolodex and, and come up with any other questions. So guys will say, do you think I need to ask me anything? Else? I need to ask anything else. And sometimes I'll say, yeah, you haven't asked me about the complications. You haven't asked me about how many I've done or, or would I have this done if it were me? Those are the moments I think we have to get to as surgeons and physicians. We have to get to that uncomfortable silence to make sure that patient leaves the office with that confidence in you and that connection. I think that's what really kind of really kind of puts the lid on it, so to speak. So I, mean, I agree. I think that's a beautiful thing. I think that um, the, think about the neurologic diseases that they that our patients have. They have lost control of their life. What you have just done with that that statement you just said is you've given them back a little control in their life, okay? Think about, as a patient, how important that was, what you said. What haven't you asked, you know? And, and I think a patient would appreciate that when you say, you know, what, what have I not answered for you that you need to know? And that is, in a sense, giving back control to the patient of this uh, treacherous problem they're dealing with. So I, I like it. It's beautiful. Well, thank you. It's uh, been my honor to talk with you. And it's hard to believe I'm sitting here 21, 22 years later with you, interviewing you for this podcast. But life is funny. <laughs> thank you, Brian. You're very kind. Well, thank you again, Dr. Ellenbogen. and I really appreciate your time. And this has been the CNS Optimizing Podcast. And thank you all so much for tuning in.